Well, good morning. So we're very excited you're here. I'm very excited anybody would get up this early to come to a session at 7 o'clock. So we are going to play Jeopardy. Who's excited? I'm excited. And yeah, woohoo. Um, we have some helpers who are running around with the microphone. So um, it's called I'll Take Pain for a Thousand, Alex. Uh, neither of us have anything to disclose. And we're going to talk, we have five categories, so we're only going to play one round of Jeopardy. And these are the categories, pain pathophysiology, everybody's favorite, analgesic pharmacology, all the pharmacists like that one, monitoring, my favorite, conversions, titrations, and breakthrough, oh my, and pain terminology. And it goes from 100 to 500. If you would like to volunteer for a uh, question, you raise your hand, and one of our lovely microphone people will run around to you, give you the mic. I'll show you the answer, and you have to give us the question. If you're correct, you get a $5 gift certificate to Amazon. And before you look, the slides are not posted because the answers are there, which we forgot about last year so this year I remembered yes ma'am they will be posted after the session yes yes so dr. Glick are you ready to do this me I, I'm only here for, for you're here for comic relief right I'm here no that's me I'm comic lamb. relief I'm here as the sacrificial lamb because this way Link can pick on me instead of picking on you that's right all right who wants to who wants to jump in Let's not be shy. I have instructed our microphone people to pick on people if you don't volunteer. We have Courtney, do you need to find a victim? Right over here. Oh, we got a victim. Okay. What do you want? Take uh, monitoring for 100, please. Monitoring for 100. The answer is this adverse effect of most opioids is most commonly experienced and does not subside with continued use. Um, what is constipation? Look at that. What is constipation? Yeah. So you are $5 richer, my friend. So, you know, we always think about constipation as the most common side effect, of course, and we never, never, never get tolerance to it. But there are so many side effects of the opioids, and I do think it's important to counsel people ahead of time. Um, you know, these are some of the more common ones, but, you know, we also have those long-term side effects that we don't think about, like immunosuppression and so forth. Oops. Um, Go back here. All righty. So as you can see, monitoring for 100 is now a little darker, which means somebody's already taken that. All right. We're on a roll. Who's up next? Okay. Right here. Pretty, uh, Lynn, I'll take uh, pain terminology for 500, please. Pain terminology for 500. Whoa. Wow, you are a big dog. Wow. A primary chronic neurobiologic disease with genetic, psychosocial, and environmental factors influencing its development and manifestations. Hey, no one else can tell can say the answer. That helps them cheat. I heard that. Yeah, if you shout out the answer, all you've done is help that person. Fibromyalgia, Ehlers Danlos, all kinds of stuff. Hey, no, that's I, not it. I have a new idea for a rule. If what? you get the answer wrong, you have to pay $5. Oh, no. <laughs> Although we could get rich. Thomas, pick somebody else. What is chronic pain? No. 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 <laughs> this right here? Addiction. Yes, what is addiction? But be careful not to shout it out because if they'd have heard you, they'd have got it right. So do you have the forwarder or am I doing it for All you? All yours. Okay, go ahead. No, you can do it. 
Oh, he wants me to do it. So we all know what addiction is. It's the inability to consistently abstain, uh, impairment in behavior control, craving. I like the four C's, you know, the craving, the continued use despite harm, uh, and so forth. Uh, diminished recognition of significant problem with your own behavior, dysfunctional response, and it is classified as a disease. Uh, as opposed to physical dependence, which many medications cause physical dependence, not just the opiates, but the benzos, the antidepressants, the antipsychotics, all the cardiac drugs, or most of them. You know, and I, I, you know, I do a lot of hospice care. I worry about caffeine and nicotine and sugar um, physical dependence as people decline. If they decline very rapidly, you know, they can get that caffeine withdrawal headache, for example. So addiction has many forms, but not to be confused with uh, physical dependence. All right, who's up next? We're smoking now. Yes, back there. I have a brave soul. Monitoring for 500, please. Oh, look at you. You all know you still only get the same five bucks. You don't actually get more money. <laughs> okay, the answer is this metabolite would be expected in a urine drug screen of a person using oxycodone. Don't shout out the answer if you know it. What is noroxycodone? Oh, you know, I don't think that that's not what we had as the right answer. Or oxymor oxymorphone. Oxymorphone, correct. Yeah. So I do think, um, you know, you ha it's almost like you have to carry the slide in your wallet all the time if you're going to be interpreting urine drug screens because people have been, patients have been un um, accused unfairly uh, if something shows up in their urine that you weren't expecting. So good job. You did get them both. What can I say? You, but you only get one gift certificate. Sorry. <laughs> That's just how we roll. Who's next? How about somebody from this side of the room? Okay, lady on the aisle. Pharmacology. For how 100. much? A hundred. Analgesic pharmacology for a hundred. This non-opioid agent has analgesic and antipyretic properties, but no anti-inflammatory. You just want a generic answer? Please. What is acetaminophen? Look at you, acetaminophen, good job. So, you know, I think this is why we talk about the dosing limit because we worry about the acute liver failure. Um, we all know how acetaminophen is metabolized. There's sulfation, there's glucuronidation. And then we have this um, N-acetyl-P-benzoquinone-amine, NAPKI is what it's called. And then that's a toxic metabolite. So it runs around like Pac-Man and chews up all your little hepatocytes. So usually it just is, it binds with glutathione and it's excreted, no harm, no foul. But if you take extra acetaminophen, a super therapeutic dose, or you're, you have a dysfunctional liver, that doesn't happen and the uh, NAPKI builds up and that's not a good look. Uh, so also we have to worry about drug interactions that interfere with glucuronidation or sulfation or mess with the cytochrome P450 enzymes or anything else that reduces your glutathione level. This also comes up a lot. What is the dose? I was writing a paper a couple years ago and I actually went to the FDA webpage trying to find a reference for it really is still four grams and I couldn't even find a reference. So I actually called a friend who works at the FDA, also a pharmacist, and said, could you please find me a reference? And she couldn't find one. But it is still four grams a day or one gram per dose, not to exceed four a day. Over the counter is three grams. I have my personal opinion on why the manufacturers did that. I personally think it's because that FDA advisory panel at one point had toyed with the idea of making the 500 milligram tablet or capsule prescription strength. 
and the 325 only over the counter. And I mean, let's face it, when you go to the pharmacy and you're buying acetaminophen, nobody dinks around with 325. Everybody buys the 500. So of course, nobody would want that, if you were making that for a living, would want that to be a prescription product. So the easier thing to do is to say, let's just lower the total daily dose over the counter. And many medications have different doses for over the counter and prescription, like ibuprofen and naproxen. The American Liver Foundation, uh, just because their worry ward said no more than three grams a day, all the guidelines, this kills me. It says avoid or limit use with greater than three drinks a day. You know, you know what? If you're putting back three drinks a day, I'm thinking don't even go there, not let alone three grams a day. And of course, be oh, careful with hepatic disease. Um, and this is just the original study that set off the whole firestorm about, this was actually a very interesting study. It was five different groups, placebo, acetaminophen only, and three different acetaminophen opioid combinations because the researchers thought that this bump that they had seen in clinical practice was from the opioid, the bump in the liver enzymes. But in fact, it was all four groups where they saw it, everybody but placebo. So acetaminophen alone is what was causing it. And that's how we first got hip to what the heck was going on. All right, that was a long explanation for an easy one. You know, you do read that once in a while. Once in a while, you'll see in a book, they'll lump it in with the non-steroidals. I think when, you know, practically speaking, I, I don't think so. Yeah, nor is it an antiplatelet. I have not, I didn't, I have not seen any difference. Mm hmm Yeah, no, her question was long-term use. She thought she had read something about being 2 or 2.4 grams a day. No, I've not seen that. And I get the question a lot about what about the elderly? Should they be 2.4 or 3 grams a day? And I've not seen that either. Even the American Geriatric Society still says 4 grams unless they have compromised liver function. People on Coumadin and I, well, just know that if you go over 2 grams a day of acetaminophen, your INR is going to go up. And you can titrate around that. All right, who's up next? Oh, gentleman on the white. Courtney and Thomas are getting their steps in today. And Ashley, because she's the coupon lady. Good morning. I'll take uh, pain terminology for 300, please. Pain terminology for 300. You're going to go from the middle ground here. A psychotherapeutic approach that addresses dysfunctional emotions, maladaptive behaviors and cognitive processes, and contents through a number of goal-oriented, explicit, systematic procedures. Would that be what is cognitive behavioral therapy? What do you think, Doctor? Ooh, I think we have a winner. Do we have a big wiener here? There you yeah. go. <laughs> Did you say big wiener? Um, cognitive behavioral therapy basically is based on the premise that there's something in addition to just the actual underlying pathophysiology that's causing the patient's problem. So there's something or a component that involves something that's cognitive, something that's effective, something on the behavioral side. And then on the treatment side of that equation, if we can give the patient something that, you can go to the next slide if you'd like. Oh. See, because she, she has control of the slides, I can control the answers. If you can give the patient some kind of a skill that they have to understand better what is wrong with them and then skills in which to deal with that problem, you essentially give the patient skin in the game and give them a greater chance of likelihood for having a more favorable outcome with respect to the treatment of their problem. And my little side note here is the clinical pearl. When I first started in practice 20 odd years ago, I, like all of us, we received training. Here's the pathology, here's what we do to treat it, correct? But over the time, thanks to meetings like this, we started learning more about some of the things that we weren't necessarily taught about. And I have to say that cognitive behavioral therapy things, essentially components, have migrated into my 
own examination and treatment skills, you know, treatment of the patient, so that becomes a very much big clinical part of what I do. I'm not just looking for the actual underlying pathologies. Um, I still remember to this day Dr. Ted Jones doing an example, I think it was at Red Rock, mm -hmm. where he took a patient that was an, actually a pain patient, also a provider, gave them a task to do, and over the course of this task, he then asked them about their pain when they were done, and their response was, wow, I didn't even think about it. And that's the key, so. CBT. All right, good job. Some people think that distraction therapy is not fair. It works. It does work. It I works. Think anything that works is fair. All right, who's up next? Hey, we have seats up front for you guys in the back if you want to come sit down. Although we will pick on you. I'm kidding. Who wants to go next? Right here. Here comes Thomas. I like monitoring for 100. Uh, somebody already took that. and start at the top. You want to do monitoring for 200? Do you notice everybody's avoiding conversion okay. titration? Yeah, I can give you 200. <laughs> 200 would be fine. Okay. Thank you. This mnemonic, now this is, I have to disclose, all answers are arbitrary and completely decided by me. So this mnemonic is what I like to assess a pain complaint. Um, that's the PQRST. Yes, exactly. So there are a bunch of them, but this is my favorite. So you got to have something to hang your hat on to do a consistent uh, method for assessing any complaint, including pain, of course. So I like P, which stands for three things, precipitating what brings it on or makes it worse, palliating what makes it better from a non-drug perspective, and previous treatment or therapy. Q is quality, R is the region, where is the boo-boo? I'd like them to show me so I can see if they say it's like right here or it's a whole area, and does it radiate anywhere? S is severity, T is temporal, and U stands for Y-O-U, meaning associated symptoms. How does the pain affect you? Good job, although there are others. All right, where are we now? So we'll do there, and then we'll do you next, okay? Ooh, I can turn off my own cell phone. <laughs> I'll do analgesic pharmacology for 200, please. Analgesics for 300. Opioids such as morphine bind to this receptor to alter the perception of pain. Um, what is the mu receptor? Oh, you'd be beaten if you hadn't gotten that one, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, baby. So, you know, when we look at the receptors, there's the mu, the kappa, which has some wonky effects, some analgesia, sometimes psychotomimetic effects. And delta, we're not quite sure what the heck that is. Sometimes you read about sigma. Uh, but mostly it's the um, mu receptor that we're looking at. And uh, so certainly that's what's tied to the analgesia, but many of the adverse effects as well. Yes. Uh, and then we can also talk but, about the affinity. Really. So obviously morphine is one of the, the stronger opioids. And then we have drugs like like um, buprenorphine, which is a partial agonist, which is interesting because buprenorphine, even though it's a partial agonist, meaning the more, theoretically with a strong opioid, the more you give, the more you get. It's a, it's a linear dose response curve, which is where that idea came from of there's no maximum daily dose to an opioid, which pharmacologically is true if it doesn't kill the patient, but we know that clinically we worry about, you know, are we getting, achieving the therapeutic goal? Is the patient having a better functional status? Uh, but with buprenorphine, that's not true. You increase the dose and you reach a flat part of the curve. But what's interesting is it has a stronger affinity for the mu receptor, so it's stickier. It binds much more strongly. So if somebody's on morphine, for example, and then you add buprenorphine to the mix, theoretically the buprenorphine could kick the morphine off the receptor, and if you don't replace it with an equianalgesic dose of the buprenorphine, theoretically you could cause some withdrawal. So love pharmacology. I better love pharmacology since I do it for a living, right? <laughs> um, I'll do monitoring for 400. Monitoring for four. Well, nobody's going for that pain pathophys there, are they? I'm not, 
I'm surprised no one's going for conversions. That's right. Well, that's my favorite. What's wrong with these people? These are considered standard of medical care for monitoring aberrant drug behavior in patients using opioid therapy. Is it urine drug screen? That is one acceptable answer, yes. So there are lots of different things. So urine drug screening, PDMP, risk assessment tools before you start opioid therapy, during opioid therapy. Uh, here's the ORT from Dr. Lynn Webster. This is just one that's pretty easy to use. There are many, many others that you can use. Um, and I, I do like uh, Dr. Pasek's slash Gourlay's approach to the four A's. Dr. Think Dr. Pasek added a fifth A, which is affect. And if you hear him speak sometimes, he'll say there's a sixth one, which is where he says, all right, already, because he lectures about this so much. But I do think this is important and I built this into our soap note in our clinic to absolutely I make sure that my students in their S and their O gather the information that speaks to the patient's level of analgesia, any adverse effects of the opioids, any aberrant drug related behavior and their activity which is their functional status. Now on this regimen I can sleep through the night. Now I'm able to go back to work part time and affect is important too. I'm not as I'm unhappy as I was, I'm not crying all the time and so forth and it helps you set realistic goals so I agree with Ronald Reagan you know and God would trust all others we audit so certainly trust would verify very important <laughs> I never heard that one all right we got one in the back row got a back row bomber back there I'll try conversion for a hundred <gasps> you rock my world Increase the dose of extended release oxycodone as opposed to decreasing the dosing interval with this type of breakthrough pain. What is chronic pain? No. We have a hand up over here. Levi's got a hand up. End of dose, End of dose deterioration, exactly. So, you know, when we look at pain, um, there's the background pain, which is persistent pain, which by definition is pain that's there at least 12 out of the 24 hours. And then superimposed on that is our breakthrough pain, which is usually sudden and unpredictable, although it certainly can be incident pain, meaning it's some, you do something to the patient or they do something, and that brings on the pain, which could be volitional or non-volitional. Every time I cough, I get the pain. Well, that's pretty non-volitional. I cannot say I've decided not to have any more bladder spasms because it causes me pain. But things like when the nurse comes to do my wound care or when I go to physical therapy, that's incident pain that's volitional. And then there's end of dose deterioration. Um, so this is again to what is breakthrough pain. Um, so the different types. So incident pain, as I just said, which can be predictable or unpredictable. And then there's idiopathic, meaning I didn't do anything. Nobody did anything to me. It's just boom, out of the blue, I have this, this jolt of pain that shot down my arm. And then the third type is this end of dose deterioration. So long acting morphine should last 12 hours. Generic MS cotton, generic uh, well, oxycotton, the other ones that are supposed to be Q12. Sometimes patients will say, I just can't go the whole 12 hours. And your inclination is to say, okay, let's go Q8. Uh, but I would rather, like if, if someone has diabetes and they're on NPH insulin twice a day and their blood sugar is not controlled, you would not say, well, let's make the NPH three times a day. You would say, let's increase the dose of the NPH. So my preferred strategy would be to increase the dose of the opiate a little bit to see if we can get it to last the 12 hours. Even with something like pain, when you re reduce the dosing interval and make it more frequent, adherence suffers. So try not to if you can help it if you know this is a product that reliably will last that whole dosing interval. All righty. Who's up next? Yeah, right in the middle here. We'll give it a go. I'll take pain terminology for 100, please. Okay. 
a neuron conducting impulses inwards to the brain or spinal cord. Afferent? Ooh, on point. There you go. Not a lot to say here except if you go to the next slide for me. There are two primary, well, if you think about it, the nervous system is like a two-way highway. We have signals going to, signals going from. The afferents are traveling in towards the spinal brainal cord. Did I say brainal cord? <laughs> spinal cord and brain. But it's all too, too early, early for you and for them. They and the efferents it. are traveling away from the spinal cord and brain. And the way I always remembered it was if you think about A pointing to, like the top of an A is an arrow, points to, and the E, the fingers of the E coming out for spreading away. So it's a good way of just remembering the difference between afferents and efferents. Yes, well, that's the other point. Thank you for pointing that out. The, the afferents are giving information essentially to the body, and then the body is responding or has to respond to that information, which is the effect. That's also another way of remembering it. Thank you. Good show. Who's up next? Uh, you know, if I did not spend money every day on Amazon, I think they would go bankrupt. I really do. So I know everybody loves Amazon. Well, we can start picking up people, which is We could. Good. Oh, we had one here and one over there. Who raised their hand over here? Oh, okay. Uh, pain pathophys for one. All righty. A brave soul. A myelinated large diameter fiber that transmits sharp, well-localized pain. Well, I will go, it's either A or C, maybe. <laughs> well, well. <laughs> you're either rich or poor, my or, friend. What's it going to be? be? All of the above, yes. Which is it? Don't ever listen to the audience. He said, see, Dr. Glick, what are you going to do about that? I, he gets 20 lashings. 20 <laughs> lashes? All right, so. But I have a good way of remembering that. But I'll try and be. But somebody, so he said it's A or C, but even saying A is not enough of an answer. That's correct. So who would like to take it now? Oh, a delta. There right. you go. Basically, there are three primary afferent fibers that travel in that peripheral nerve. A delta, C fibers, and A beta. Except what are the ones that are responsible for pain? A delta and C. A delta are the large diameter myelinated fibers, myelin being responsible for saltatory conduction, allowing the signal to go faster. And C fibers are the smaller diameter. You can go to the next slide. Thank you. Um, and they are responsible for more of the slower pain, and they're the narrower, narrow diameter, non-myelinated fibers. Now, there are A-beta fibers as well. We don't have any extra certificates, so we can't do that. But extra credit points unofficially for anybody who can tell me what the A-beta fiber is for, which is an even larger diameter myelinated fiber. We do have one extra Amazon gift card, I think. Yeah, but I think we'll probably have a better slide for that. Okay, well, then we'll let it go. A-beta, yes? Well, light touch, no. A beta, sorry about that. A beta fibers are responsible for um, proprioception, not nociception. Think muscle, tendon, spindle activity, kinesthesia. But there is an explanation, I'll give you a cliffhanger for the pain pathophys lecture on how that could play a role for certain forms of fibromyalgia or myofascial pain. Okay. Thank you. All righty. Well, that was an exciting one. Not really. All right. Who's up next? Yeah. Terminology for a 200. Pain terminology for 200. 
painful response to what should normally be a non-painful stimulus. Ooh, allodynia. That would Did be correct. Did she say I didn't hear? Okay. She Good. said allodynia. No. She's right. Okay, It wasn't me. All right. Oh. It was the person in front of me. Oh. Well, you well, need to share with her. I, well, she gets it because she was the one. Someone cheated, so she gets the certificate anyway. How's that? All right. So when we talk about central sensation, the two primary terms that we think about often are allodynia and hyperalgesia. Allodynia is essentially a painful response to something that should normally be innocuous. Like the, the examples I use when I, in the pain pathophys session is, think about the patient with gout that feels the sheet touch their great toe and that elicits a painful event. Think about the complex regional pain syndrome patient that feels air hitting the hairs on their forearm and that elicits a painful event. That's allodynia. On the other hand, hyperalgesia is sort of an exaggerated stimulus. Something should feel uncomfortable, but it shouldn't necessarily be painful. Make sense? Next slide, please. Thank you. One of the best ways of explaining this process, I think, is this graph, but there is something on here that I think I need to modify for next year. If you look at the normal plot where we have the blue line, we have this area initially where that initial stimulus is essentially something you don't even pay attention to. We don't pay attention to the sheet. We don't pay attention to the air. But then as you increase the stimulation intensity, the pain intensity starts to ramp up, and it's more of a linear effect. But if you phase shift that curve to the left, now we have the red line. So now you have this whole new area where you have this area of pain to something that should normally be innocuous. And then if you notice, then we have a higher perceived pain intensity compared to a lower stimulus intensity on the bottom of the line. Can anybody tell me what's wrong with that picture? There is no fine, divi fine, divi fine I can't even speak this morning, fine dividing line between allodynia and hyperalgesia. It's a soft line, so we kind of should blur it for going forward because there's no set amount that says like, ooh, a pain scale is five, that's allodynia versus hyperalgesia. Okay, you, good deal. Water. All right, so we've got lots of pain pathophys and lots of conversions left over still. Who's game for this? All right, Courtney, pick on somebody. Oh, we got a hand up. We've got a willing volunteer back there. How, how about analgesic pharmacology for 100? Well, we already took that. How about 200? Oh, 200, sorry. Okay. This topical adjuvant analgesic acts locally by blocking sodium channels and is used to treat neuropathic pain <coughs> such as posterpedic neuralgia. What is lidocaine? Right-o, right is lidocaine, or lidoderm specifically. <clears throat> so we know lidocaine is a class 1B antiarrhythmic, and it does block the sodium channel, so, and, and, as well as a variety of other things. So we've got lots of over-the-counter things that contain lidocaine, including some over-the-counter lidocaine patches now. There are at least two on the market that I'm aware of. Um, so the lidoderm brand name is the 5% patch applied directly <clears throat> to the area of posterpedic neuralgia after the lesions have healed. Of course, they're no longer weeping. Uh, you can't use any more than three. And the FDA-approved indication is 12 hours on, 12 hours off. But there's actually some good data looking at yeah. low back pain where they put it on and leave it on for 24 hours and then replace it with a new patch. And there was no increase in irritation at the application site. And there's 700 milligrams of lidocaine in a lidoderm patch. And you only use 44 milligrams the first 12 hours and a smidge less each subsequent 12-hour period. So my hospice, we put it on and leave it on straight for 72 hours. So we've cut our drug cost by two-thirds. <laughs> Pretty good, actually. All right. Anybody else? Oh, come on. Are you here? Front row. Okay, why don't you tell me because I can hear you. What do you want? Monitoring for 300 she wants. 
I would like the pain to be a three or less at rest, a five or less with movement, and let me be able to go back to work full time. This is a patient speaking. A pain scale? No. Over there? Patient goal. Exactly. What is goal setting in pain management? So obviously, you know, we could use a unidimensional scale, which really just speaks to the severity. Um, but, you know, even when we're doing like the 0 to 10, 0 to 5, whatever you use, I like to ask the patient, how is your pain at rest? How is it with movement? What's the best during the day, the worst during the day? If I'm with them, what is it right now? Um, so that's important. And in my hospice, we have a thing called the SIT, the self-identified threshold, which is the patient's goal for their pain rating. Um, I do like for goal setting, I mean, when you look at the pain rating, that really is just a surrogate for what you really want is for the patient to be able to do the things they would like to do. So I think this comfort function question is very important. What would you like to be able to do that you can't do now because of the pain? Uh, I want to go back to work. I want to play with my kids. I want to be able to sleep all night and not wake up in pain, whatever it may be. So I think the goal is not only the pain rating, but I think these function goals are important too. And that's what's caused the big brouhaha with the opioids today is people are not achieving their functional goal many times. So opiate therapy maybe is not the best. So you know, when we talk about monitoring the patient, both subjective and objective for therapeutic effect, these are, this is how you would develop your monitoring plan based on the, um, the goal. All right, next. Yeah. I'll do the conversions for 200. Conversions for 200. An appropriate dose of immediate release morphine for breakthrough pain in a patient getting extended release morphine, 60Q12. Ten, 10 milligrams. 10 milligrams? That's a little low. 12 uh, milligrams. I'll give it to you because I would generally go a little bit higher. I would go 15 to 20. Uh, you know, we've got lots of different routes. We can use oral. There is oral transmucosal, which I'm not a fan of because of the cost. We certainly have parenteral. There's rectal, which kicks in pretty quickly. I am a big fan of the the proposal route, uh, but using the, the sublingual, using, for example, immediate release uh, morphine, for example, and there's an intranasal route. So when you look at the pharmacokinetics of immediate release opioids, if you're looking for speed of onset, the more lipid-soluble a drug is, the quicker the onset's going to be. So morphine is the most water-soluble opioid we have. So you can see it's the longest for the onset of analgesia. And if you go all the way down, you know, methadone is pretty fat-soluble, but fentanyl is very fat-soluble. So you can see um, fentanyl kicks in five to ten minutes. So it, it is, doesn't kick in more quickly. And although methadone does give us a nice brisk response, it's not a drug I usually recommend for breakthrough because we have to worry about the accumulation. Um, so, you know, the way I dose this generally is if we're using a traditional product like oxycodone or morphine or hydromorphone is I give 10 to 15 percent of the total daily dose of the long-acting schedule. So if somebody is getting MS-Cotton 30Q12, that's 60. 10 percent would be 6. 15 percent would be 9. They're both goofy numbers. I would go 5 or I would go 10. Now, of course, prescribers should not write an order 5 to 10 milligrams Q2 to 4. Q2 to 4 would be stupid. I mean, that just is, is dumb. And you cannot write 5 to 10 because if you're giving this order for a nurse, that's outside of the nurse's scope of practice to make that decision. And it's clearly outside of the patient's scope of practice. So what I instruct our hospice nurses to do when they're talking to the prescriber is to say, I want two orders. An order for morphine 5 milligrams for moderate pain every two hours is needed, and an order for morphine 10 milligrams Q2 hours is needed 
needed for severe pain. You, you're even supposed to do that when you're talking about acetaminophen for a fever. So for a fever of 100 or less, give 325. For a fever of 100.1 or higher, give two acetaminophen. All righty, we're rolling. We're down to the really tough ones now. We should give $10 coupons for these categories, don't you think? Who's up? All right, who's wearing purple today? Purple's a royal color. You wearing purple? There we go. Oh, she did one already. How about yep. the lady in front of her in the blue? Who rode down in the elevator with me today, right? She wants to do it because she's very nice. <laughs> she's like, damn, I wouldn't have said hello to you if I'd known that. <laughs> um, let's try... I'll let you do a street shout out to the people around you. How about that? Levi will bail you out right behind you. Let's try pain pathophys for 200, please. All righty. <laughs> the step during which a noxious stimuli is changed by the body into an action potential. Transduction. Very good. This slide put me into the doghouse for two years. You're still there. You're still there, boo-boo. <laughs> when this deck was originally done, it was Lynn's deck, and I modified it, changing a couple of categories. But she had this slide in there. So I took, I, I altered this slide, and to this day, she has Let's see if they know what's it. missing. What's missing from this slide? What's missing? You bet you believe it. There you go. See, we all, all right. know. We so all know. So basically, I view, and... and and there is no right or no wrong answer here, but I view the process of pain transmission as having four distinct steps. Transduction, conduction, transmission, perception. For the step of transduction, that's where we take the information that's the outside environment information, something that's, something that's mechanical, thermal, chemical, convert that into electrical impulse. We conduct that to the spine where it hits the first order neuron, where it then ascends to the spinal cord, which is transmission, and the last step is perception. Dr. McPherson and others maintain that modulation is a step of the process which is technically sort of true. But I consider modulation to be part of the entire process that happens in other steps as well. So because I view this as a roadmap that doesn't have an anatomical location, I consider it four. So you will see this question on many a board exam if you ever take any kind of board or certification. So the only thing I have to say is be really careful and read the question because you might have to or they might be looking for modulation as one of those four one of the steps as well, which would give you five. Everybody got that? Do another slide. Oh, well, it's okay. We already talked about it. Oh, you've already talked about it. Okay. It is very complex. Look at all those neurotransmitters. I don't even know what the heck they all are. That's really complicated. Oh, so come to the pain pathophys lecture an hour from now. No, because I don't trust you, because you lopped off 20% of the process. Thank you. So wrong. I Where would we be if we didn't have it. modulation? I we would all be in pain all the time. I swear all I pain all the day long. <laughs> See, we go. I am not sharing my uh, endorphins with you, so there. You should have been here the first year when she got to that slide and saw it. It was like <laughs> horrifying. What the heck? All right, who's up what now? What did you do? Yes. Who hasn't taken a turn? Thomas, pick on somebody. I like bright colors. If you see any bright shirts, pick on them. Hey, the lady in the hat. Anybody wearing a hat just looking for trouble. Yeah. <laughs> You can phone a friend. You're absolutely right. I know phone it. <laughs> um, Want to do pharmacology for 400? That's always fun. It's all about the drugs. Oh, yeah. Let's, let's go ahead and do for 400. Okay, let's do it. 
This group of analgesics work by inhibiting prostaglandin, prostaglandin mediated irritation of the nociceptive receptor. What are COX-2? I'll take that, COX-2 inhibitors, but non-steroidals, all the non-steroidals would do that. So we all know how they work. They inhibit the conversion to prostaglandins, which can be good and bad, so we can reduce pain and inflammation, but we can also upset the tummy and so forth. And more dire things, such as cardiovascular toxicity, by completely shifting the balance and, and, and making the platelets more sticky. So obviously, you, you mentioned COX-2. It's not a yes or no, it's a spectrum. So some drugs are a little more COX-2 selective, and some are more fair balance. And of course, we do have to worry about the side effects, whether it's non-steroidal induced bleeding, um, or more serious things such as the cardiovascular risk. So I think we all are familiar with these. Um, and this is from the American Heart Association. What do you do for acute musculoskeletal pain? And they have this three-step process, acetaminophen, or my all-time favorite drug in the world, she says, tongue-in-cheek tramadol, uh, aspirin, short-term opiate therapy, maybe the non-acetylated salicylase, and then going on to the non-selective and the COX-2 non-steroidals. All righty, see how easy-peasy that was? Anybody else got a hat on? Hey, this guy's got a hat on right over here. The guy over there with a the hat on, he's looking like, oh, my God. Pain um, pathophysiology for 300. Pathophys for 300? Yes. And keflins, dynorphins, and beta endorphins, oh, my. Opioids? Well, I'll, I'll sort of take that. They're your endogenous opioids. Dr. Glick? I'm going to leave that to you because anytime you see opioid in the definition, I'm leaving that description. Oh, that's because you don't have any endorphins in your body because you don't believe in modulation. I'm sorry. My bad. That's why this is my slide. Exactly. Yeah. So thank God we have them. That's your homegrown morphine. When the thalamus says, oh, my God, that incoming information was pain, I'm going to send it by the third order neurons to higher areas of the brain. I'm going to send it to the limbic system to decide, should we cry about it for a while? I'm going to send it to the reticular system. We're going to figure out where that pain came from. And then I'm going to decide about the severity. And I'm going to let my little soldiers go, all my encephalins, my endorphins, my dynorphins, to modulate this pain, to reduce it, so that I can continue giving this lecture with Dr. Glick. Notice I'm standing over here, and she's sitting over there. That's right. Who wants to go next? We got any more hats in the room? I think we picked on all the hats. We have a purple, hat here. purple hat. How did I miss that? What do you want to do? Oh, no, I'm not a she's saying, oh. no way, Jose. <laughs> Anybody else? Come on, this is so much fun. We won't, we won't look badly. Okay, pink. Uh, pain, pain terminology for 400. Okay, let's do this. General term for a state of spinal neuron excitability. This has got to be a Glick slide. Any thoughts? You can phone a friend. Keyword there is spinal. Does that help? It does help. Mm. Can I give a hint? I just did. Is, can I give another hint? <laughs> it's not, what is it? Do you have, you know? Give another hint. Oh, the, uh, it's not peripheral. It's, <laughs> Central it's, it's your mother saying, you are plucking my last nerve. That's what it is, but it's not peripheral. I did hear it, but I don't know who said it. Central sensitization. 
All right, so we have two forms of, of, of sensitization we talk about when it comes to chronic pain, right? Peripheral and central. For central sensitization, I like to think about it as being more complicated than peripheral sensitization because we have many more things that can happen in the process. So technically, we can have anything that changes this delicate balance between glutamate and NMDA receptors that are responsible for getting that signal to sort of jump at that first order neuron. We can look at anything we have that sort of modulates the stability or anything that affects calcium and sodium channel activity. We have, remember those descending inhibitory pathways that come down that are norepinephrine and serotonin based that are like blocking that pain channel, saying go or no go. Um, we have activation and migration of glial cells, which we don't have the glial cell lecture in this meeting. A couple of years ago, I had a great session by Dr. Pepin on glial cells, which was phenomenal. And I think there's going to be a lot more coming down the pike for glial cells, so it'll be fun. And we didn't even talk about the changes that can happen in the thalamus and the cortex responsible for pain. So central sensitization itself can be a complicated process. Good deal. We're coming down the home stretch here. We have two pathophys left and three of the conversions. Oh, hey, right here. Look at you. A brave, brave woman. A patient whose postoperative pain requires 60 milligrams of parenteral morphine per day would require this total daily dose of oral morphine to achieve the exact same degree of pain control. So in other words, how much oral is equal to 60 of parenteral? You can phone a friend if you want. Okay, 180. 180. There you go, exactly. So we've all seen these charts, and of course I think this is an awesome chart because it's from my book, but you know, my students get so excited when they see this and they're like, oh my God, there's one right answer. I was like, well, no, there's really not. It's sort of like this, is a, like, this gives you your ticket to the ballpark, but which of your 40,000 seats is yours? I'm not quite sure. So this is a guide. So you can see when we look, you know, morphine has a pretty high um, first pass effect, which is why if you give 10 milligrams perennially, you've got to give 30 milligrams to get the same effect with the oral dose. So useful, but again, not the whole story. All right, we've got four left, and we've only got five minutes, so we've got to do one a minute. Okay, which category? Okay, analgesic for 500. This opioid distributes to two body compartments and has a long terminal elimination half-life due to protein binding and high lipid solubility, and it's my favorite in the world. What is methadone? You betcha. Love my girl methadone. Um, it's, it has no active metabolite, so it's the parent drug. It is extensively, extensively metabolized, which is why it has 80 gugabazillion drug interactions. It's the opioid receptor. It's an energy receptor antagonist. It inhibits the uptake of norepinephrine and serotonin. Half-life of anywhere from 7 hours to 19 years. I say 24 hours on average, so I can say 5 days to steady state. Uh, but it's an awesome drug. You do have to watch the QT. This is just one way of converting. Um, this is the A.N. Rindy method. I actually don't use this one, but it is one that certainly is, is widely used. All right, two in fizz, two in conversions. What do we got? Conversions 400. Conversions 400. Up here, Thomas. A patient whose pain is well controlled on extended release morphine 200Q12 would be converted to this strength transdermal fentanyl per commonly used clinical dosing guidelines. What is 50 mics? No. Anybody else want to take a crack? Yeah. Nope. Anybody else want to take a crack at it? It's not 50 and it's not 100. 75. Somebody raise your hand. <laughs> raise your hand if you want to take a guess. No, you already did a hat. What do you want to do? What? No. Patient's going to spit in your eye. What? 
No. You have, do you have your hand up? Thomas, what is it? You want to do 200? Okay, it would be 200 because you take, fentanyl is about 75 to 100 times more potent than morphine. So 100 milligrams of oral morphine a day would be one milligram of fentanyl, either transdermal or IV. So 60 milligrams of oral morphine would be 600 micrograms, 0.6 milligrams of fentanyl. So it comes out to 25 mics an hour times 25 hours is what we're looking at here. So you determine the total daily dose of the patient's morphine and you cut it in half. And that's how it works out mathematically. So if this patient was getting 400, it'd be 200. Would I do that clinically? Probably not because I'm not a transdermal fentanyl fan. But you, know, you can see the, the misperceptions about 25 mics, 50 mics, the patient would be dramatically undertreated. All right, we have three left. I need a victim like right now, right now. Did you do one yet? You didn't? This young lady wants to do it. Conversions for five or pain patho? Sure, conversions. Conversions for five. An opioid-naive patient with advanced cancer abruptly complains of acute onset, incredibly severe pain, may receive this amount of parenteral morphine the first 10 minutes he presents in the ER. If it helps, I'll give you a hint. This is from the Cleveland Clinic approach. I feel like that could go lots of different answers. Well, what's your best guess? Parenteral morphine, first five. 10 minutes. Got to vote for five? I'll give ten. it to you, but it really is, is 10. Yeah, five, so their approach ten. is, uh, I really like this protocol. So if somebody, say, has cancer, all of a sudden they have screaming, horrible pain, it could be a pathologic fracture. Their protocol is one milligram every minute for five minutes, take a five-minute break, and you can repeat it for up to two more cycles. You have to have an independent licensed practitioner doing it bedside, and you do it until the pain is controlled, meaning dropping the pain about two to four points. You don't want to go to complete pain relief because obviously you're severely dose stacking. And the National Comprehensive Cancer Network says one to five and reassess at 10 minutes. So that's why I gave it to you for that. All right. We got two more. Who have we got? You can each pick somebody. Courtney, who are you picking? Green shirt. Talk to me. Do you want four or 500? Let's go 500. Let's do this. A relay station for reception and processing of nociceptive information. And we've already talked about it. Dr. Glick at least agrees with me on this one. Good thing he didn't hear you. I'll pass. Okay, how about the gentleman up here? The thalamus. Basically, the thalamus acts like the router, just like we all have computers that we use every day, and that signal has to get from the internet to get to whatever device we're looking at the internet on, and it's doing it by a router. So the thalamus is acting as a router to essentially distribute the signals to every place it's supposed to go. We used to all know about the primary sensory cortex. Remember the picture of the homunculus, the funny guy sitting on the sensory cortex with the big head and the big hands? But thanks to modern imaging studies and other things, we also now know the other parts of the brain, or many of the other parts of the brain, because I think there might be some more as we go along, that are involved in this rich experience that we call pain. We have the prefrontal cortex that's involved in motor planning, the anterior cingular cortex that's involved in the context of the situation of pain, the amygdala, which is involved in the emotional side of pain, the thalamus, obviously the router, and the hippocampus, which is, in, which is responsible for that imprinting, pain memory, pain learning. Thomas, who's your victim? One last question. All right, are you ready? Pain, pain? pathophys 400? Well, 400. It's the only category left. Yeah. Free nerve endings that are activated by noxious stimuli. Um, what is nociceptors? 
What Bingo. is a scepter? Bingo. See, I yeah. thought those were the easiast questions in the whole deck for me. The, yes, it the should have been the $100 one, one, right? Ones. Correct. So, uh, Dr. Glick, we are out of time. Well, so keeping it simple, basically, we have, we have definitely, this is the point at which transduction occurs, right? We have this mechanical thermal chemical stimulation that comes in and then is converted into something that the brain can handle, which is an electrical stimulation. Extra credit point really quickly for anybody who can tell me what a sleeping or a silent nociceptor is. One that fell asleep because they weren't happy with the content of the lecture. Yeah. And they're not getting a, a sleeping or silent nociceptor is a nociceptor that normally doesn't become active until there's the presence of tissue injury or damage. Thank you all so much for attending. We appreciate your participation. Thank you.